and welcome to the Peed Centered Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Altag, and today I'm going to be talking about button batteries. So button batteries are something that we commonly see in the pediatric emergency department that can cause pretty significant morbidity uh, as well as mortality in our pediatric patients. So I'm going to be talking about the diagnostic difficulties in these ingestions, the pathophysiology of the injuries that can occur from button batteries, and then um, current management recommendations, which have changed in the past few years. So button batteries, or some people will call them disc batteries, account for only about 2% of foreign body ingestions per year. But that does translate to over 3,000 ingestions per year in the United States alone. And these ingestions are an exception to the benign nature of the vast majority of ingested foreign bodies. So these are the true emergencies um, when you're talking about a foreign body. What makes them appealing? Why do we see these? It's because they are small, they're round, they're shiny, they're candy sized. So much like we see coin ingestions for sort of similar things, similar reasons. These are easily ingested. They're small. They're ubiquitous. Um, the other thing too is that they're slippery, so they're they have a very slick surface to them. So if kids are just playing around and put them in their mouth, it's actually very easy to swallow them because of the slickness to the surface. Looking for these in my household when I was first thinking about this topic, I went through and probably found. 25 to 30 button batteries in my own house within a few minutes of just looking around. They are everywhere. So they are in watches, they're in hearing aids, any small electronics, a lot of children's toys, anything that lights up, including the little light up toothbrushes. And they have varying levels of safety systems in place. Some of them are locked up with a screw on mechanism to keep them out of the reach of kids. Some of them are very, very easily removed. And so that's just something that we need to be cognizant of is that there are some safety mechanisms in place, but it's not regulated. And so these button batteries can be very easy to access. The changing makeup over time of these button batteries has made them more corrosive. They've been made to be more powerful. They last longer, but those have ill effects for us when we're talking about their effects on tissue. So ingestions of these are almost always accidental and they are related to that age appropriate curiosity among the toddler and preschool crowd and just sort of normal oral exploratory behaviors. So the risk factors follow, meaning preschool age, older children who have developmental delay who are sort of in the preschool developmental stage or being in the care of grandparents' house who are just more likely to have hearing aids, watches, um, button batteries stored in places that aren't necessarily kept locked away from kids. So they're just a little bit more easily accessible there. And what do these button batteries do? So when we're talking about damaging tissue, the reason that these batteries cause so much damage is because it's an alkaline burn. So it's corrosion and it's coagulation necrosis, which if you remember, um, causes a much more significant burn than an acidic one because it causes the coagulation and so much a deeper tissue injury. So you can get pressure necrosis, one, and then also you get burns. And that is coming from a small but constant electrical activity between the tissue and that button battery. 
Um, you can also see toxic metal absorption with these, but it's really pretty rare and not clinically significant. So not really something that we have to worry too much about, although in some cases you will see some metal absorption. The lithium batteries specifically have a higher complication rate than those that are made up of any other element. So these are the ones that are going to cause the most complications. And what this battery does when it's touching mucosal tissue, it generates this external current. So it's hydrolyzing the tissue fluids, it's producing hydroxide at the negative pole, and it's coagulating the tissue over time. Interestingly, this again, like I said, is a deep injury. So it will continue for days to weeks after removal of the offending agent. And that is something that we need to keep in mind when we are taking care of children who have ingested these. So lithium is used for these button batteries predominantly now because it has a great shelf life, it's more stable, it's lightweight, has twice the other the voltage of any other kinds of button batteries. So that is great for electronics, and that's why there's been a move towards, um, you know, you'll almost exclusively find lithium-based button batteries when you're going to purchase them nowadays. Terrible for the mucosa, though, because of longer shelf life, more stability, um, lighter weight, easier to ingest, higher voltage. So all of those things are not great for our mucosal tissues, which is not what they were intended to be in contact with in the first place. Interestingly, size does matter. So a button battery that is greater than 20 millimeters is actually the most important predictor of damage. The small lithium batteries do less damage. Now that's because of two things. The smaller ones may not uh, reach as much of a current, but also the larger batteries are more likely to be stuck in the esophagus and not pass through the stomach where they are not likely to cause issues. So it's just like a larger coin is more likely to be uh, lodged in the esophagus of a child and just it's it, same thing. Larger batteries cause more problems because they get stuck in places where they shouldn't be. Age matters too. And when I say age, I mean both age of the child and age of the battery, right? So a new battery is going to do far more damage than a spent battery. An old battery that's been changed out and replaced and put into a coin jar by accident is less likely to cause as severe damage as something that's straight out of the package. And it's just because of the voltage capacity that they have. The age of the kid also matters. So if they're under four years old, they're more likely to have severe damage. And again, this, this kind of relates to size and the ability to detect or um, obtain a history of an ingestion in the first place. So when these batteries are in contact with our mucosa or our skin, what are they doing? You're getting skin necrosis if it's touching the skin. You're getting mucosal bleeding, septal perforation, and that is for superficial foreign bodies. So children sometimes will place these underneath casts. There have been reports of this where, you know, a child will sort of wedge things under their cast because it's itchy. And if a button battery gets lodged between the cast and the skin, it can cause a necrotic issue. And then likewise, in the nose, in the ear, in the vagina, you will get significant mucosal injury. Nasal septal perforation can be pretty significant. And so these should be treated as an emergency as well. So we think of the most dangerous emergency from button batteries being an ingestion. However, these superficial ones can cause really profound damage as well. And so those require emergent consultation and removal as well. 
But talking about the ingestion of foreign bodies, these are the deadly complications. This is where you can see esophageal perforation, the formulation of TE fistulas, um, recurrent laryngeal nerve damage that causes vocal cord paralysis, mediastinitis, pneumothorax, aorta esophageal fistula, and a massive exsanguinating hemorrhage. So the other frightening thing about button batteries is that you can see profound injury and necrosis within two hours of ingestion. So it can happen really fast. Animal models will show an even faster rate. And I will post a link to a YouTube video which actually shows uh, an animal model using, I believe it was spam that they used and showed a uh, timing video of the damage and how quickly it eroded through. So in the animal models though, you will see corrosion to that inner muscular layer of the esophagus within 15 minutes, 30 minutes to the outer muscular layer, an hour to an extent to the trachea. Now, generally it's gonna take a little bit longer in humans than it does in these animal models, but it's unpredictable and it can be really fast. So finding these things is really a great difficulty because while button batteries are more likely to be symptomatic than other foreign bodies that are ingested of similar sizes, most kids will still be asymptomatic after an ingestion. And so you have to really take a careful history and have to think about the possibility of ingested button battery. When you have a patient, especially in that toddler or preschool age group, who's presenting with drooling, dysphagia, vomiting, chest pain or throat pain that doesn't have a good explanation, refusal to eat when you're not seeing, you know, a good reason for it, um, gastroenteritis or another reason. And then any hematemesis from a child should really make you be thinking about, did they ingest something that is causing them to have um, an upper GI bleed or pulmonary bleed too? Um, there have been documented cases of aspiration of button batteries as well. So it's easy to look for these. And what you want to do is just get an x-ray. Now, a single AP view is not going to tell you too much because what you're going to see is you're going to see the button battery face on just as you would see a coin. So all you're going to see is a circle. The answer that you're looking for is in the lateral view because you're going to see this double ring sign on the x-ray. So a coin is going to look like a thin flat line and a disc battery, by contrast, is going to look like it's either got two rings or it's just thicker. So you can actually see the difference when you're looking at the lateral. So depending on institutional protocols, sometimes it's an x-ray foreign body series that gets multiple views. Sometimes it's a, quote, wide angle chest x-ray. What you're wanting to make sure you include is airway, chest, mediastinum, and preferably getting the upper abdomen so that you know if something has passed the pylorus, if there is an ingestion there. And absolutely have to have a lateral, uh, otherwise the x-rays really aren't useful to you. So once you find one of these, if it is in the esophagus, that dictates emergent endoscopy and removal, regardless of NPO status, regardless of any other mitigating factors, this thing needs to come out and needs to come out ASAP. So conventional wisdom, though, is that if you do see a button battery ingestion and it is past the fundus, you're in the clear. 
there is a caveat to that. So with most foreign body ingestions, we say if it's made it to the stomach, it's probably going to be fine. With a button battery, generally that is true. But if you don't know how long it took to get there, and generally you're not going to unless you have an absolutely rock solid history of a witnessed ingestion by an adult. So adult, an adult who is a reliable historian. So a lot of factors in there. It's not a problem for the stomach or intestines if you see a button battery there. But it's hard to know how long it sat in the esophagus before it passed through. So it may have been sitting in the esophagus for hours before you know it passed further through the GI tract into the sort of the safe zone. And the patient may have severe burns and may not have initial symptoms when they come in. So it's really something to think about if you're seeing a patient with a button battery, even if it's passed out of that sort of emergent zone of the esophagus, you know, do I need to talk to GI or pediatric surgery? And do we need to consider consultation or endoscopy for this patient, even if it's gone into the stomach or beyond? I think it's worth a phone call and a discussion with um, your regional peds, GI, or pediatric surgery team to talk about their preferences and for follow-up at the very minimum, especially if a family is far away or has poor access uh, or has other factors that might make it difficult for them to follow up or seek care immediately with any concerns. So the other thing that you need to think about is any patient who ingested a button battery and has bleeding. And that is that counts as an acute ingestion or a recent history of a button battery ingestion and bleeding, you need to consider them critically ill. You need to consider that a sentinel bleed and you need to start thinking about things like cardiothoracic surgery. Where is my ECMO team? How do I get this patient transferred? Do we have blood products getting large bore IVs and access? This is a very critical finding. So looking out for sentinel bleeds, we, as I said, we do need to think about it, not only in the acute setting, but really in the subacute setting as well. So children have died from fistula bleeds up to three weeks after a button battery removal. So this can happen quite a long time after an ingestion, either known or unknown. So what do we need to do to sort of be prepared for that? The things that I said before, so large bore IVs, know where your blood products are, know where you're going to send your patients to, you know, what regional pediatric facility. Ideally, you need one that is capable of cardiothoracic surgery because the thoracotomy may be necessary. Ideally, you have an ECMO center as well in case they need to bypass, you know, cross clamp the aorta and bypass it because there's a fistula. In the meantime, within the emergency department, Having a Blakemore tube is necessary. And what the Blakemore tube is for those of you who are not familiar with it, it kind of operates similarly to a Foley sump combination. So you have a sump for extracting any fluid that's coming up, likely blood. And then you have two balloons. One of them goes into the stomach. One of them goes into the esophagus. And these tamp tamponade any bleeding that's happening. General emergency medicine physicians are well-versed in this due to the rate of upper GI bleeds in adult patients that they see. So 
if you don't know how to use one, and I will be honest, I have not personally ever used one, calling your EM colleagues to come over and help you or an emergency medicine nursing staff, they're also going to know how to do it if they do uh, emergency med and criteria within the emergency department. So get somebody over who knows how to do it. doesn't have to be you. But any little one who's having bleeding with a button battery ingestion should get this Blakemore tube put in to help mitigate any of the bleeding while an OR is being prepped, transfer is being made, your ECMO team is being called, whatever resources that you have available to you quickly. But this at least will help you stop the bleed. And do be really worried about these kids. Most kids have these sort of minor symptoms, you know, a small amount of hematemesis. We see kids who have, you know, post-op tonsillectomy bleeds. I worry about those kids too, but these kids I worry about the most because only a tiny amount of bleeding can indicate a fistula, which is going to lead to uh, massive bleeding out quickly. And there's not anything in the emergency department or certainly not on the pediatric floor that we would be able to do for it. So talking about treatment protocols, if you have a witness or suspected button battery ingestion, just to review, if it's esophageal and the patient is stable, Immediate endoscopic removal is what needs to happen. If the patient is clinically unstable or has any bleeding, the patient needs endoscopic removal in the OR with pediatric surgery, not just GI. Cardiovascular surgery also, uh, again, in case of thoracotomy is needed and in case there's aortic injury. And then as these patients are treated within the hospital, if there's any esophageal injury, we're talking just esophageal alone, they're admitted they're placed NPO, they're put on IV antibiotics, and they are monitored very regularly. Uh, oftentimes, CT angio is necessary to look for aortic injury or MRI of the chest. Um, can be done either way, depending on sort of the preference of the team. If there is not surrounding injury and it's just esophageal burn, then you do esophagram, gradual return to feeding, and um, advanced diet as they're able to. If they see any injury near the aorta, you're looking at prolonged NPO status, antibiotics, serial imaging to evaluate the injury and watch for it. And then if there's any bleeding that's noted in, you know, in the next month or so after this initial ingestion, the child's going to have to go emergently to the OR and be evaluated. Now, taking us back to in the emergency department or urgent care setting, if it's in the stomach, or beyond it. If the kid is older older than five years of age and the button battery is small, you can probably just do outpatient observation. I personally would still consult gastroenterology or pediatric surgery and talk to them about recommendations and follow-up. Even if they're recommending outpatient follow-up, I would want it to be with one of them, and I would want to have them in the conversation that's making that decision at the outset. Oftentimes there will need to be repeat x-rays to look for passage or just to sort of track this. And any symptoms will require return to the hospital and return for endoscopic removal. If the child is younger than five or the button battery is large, you're gonna probably want endoscopic assessment. And so this again is why I just like to talk to my subspecialty teams and consult to have a discussion about where they want to go with this and what their comfort level is. And, and a lot of times it'll depend on 
the family resources, distance from the hospital, um, things like that too. So taking it even a few more steps back, when we have patients who have a suspected ingestion and we are the medical control for what is happening. So if we have an EMS agency that's calling us for recommendations or if you have friends or you're in a mommy group and somebody's calling you for recommendations, there at home, there was a witnessed button battery ingestion. Honey and caraphate are a great way to mitigate damage. So they're viscous. They provide both a physical barrier between that button battery and the mucosal lining. And they're also weak acids. So um, can mitigate this uh, alkali alkaline burn that these buttons are causing. So most EMS agencies have now adopted a treatment protocol and the CDC has recommendations for this as well, that you're going to give frequent small amounts until definitive care is available. And that is critically important for families who are far away from a care center where they can have their child come to have endoscopic removal or if weather is a factor, if anything that's going to anything that's going to delay transport to the care center where it can be removed, this is really helpful in mitigating the damage. So the dosing of the honey is 10 mLs every 10 minutes, or you can do 5 mLs every 5 minutes. It's really about just getting it in and getting it in steadily. You can do that. Some protocols will say up to six doses, but really you can do it indefinitely until you can get the patient into the OR for endoscopy, endoscopy and removal. So you want to start that honey at home if possible. This is something that 911 operators will actually tell families to start if they call with this. It can be given during long transports. Kids tolerate it well. It's just honey. They love it. Um, it should not be used for kids under a year old due to botulism risk, but... Some people may have agave nectar available. Some EMS agencies may actually uh, carry it if they are in remote areas with long transport times. That's actually safe to give to the babies, and so you could do that if, if need be. Within the hospital, some hospitals will use honey, um, and, and some will use sucralfate. Uh, honestly, it really doesn't matter. They both work quite well. So same dosing regimen you're going to want to give. 10 mLs about every 10 minutes. And again, just give it steadily until removal is uh, possible. So just to summarize this, all button battery ingestions and superficial foreign bodies are an emergency because of the damage that they can do and because of how quickly they can do it. Esophageal button batteries are an absolute terror and are life-threatening, time-sensitive emergencies that you have to act very quickly on because these damage patterns can be very unpredictable. They're variable. They can be really severe. And then we need to remember from a follow-up standpoint that tissue injury continues even after removal. So one, endoscopy is warranted in any high-risk patient. Two, these children need very close monitoring outpatient and any child who comes in with any kind of bleeding with a history of a button battery ingestion needs a very thorough investigation. And really, if they have any symptoms that are concerning, you know, as I talked about earlier, dysphagia, vomiting, anorexia, um, chest pain, after a button battery ingestion that's known, we really need to be concerned. And then lastly, honey and caraphate are a really great addition to our treatment armamentarium that have come up in the past few years. It works 
very well and it gives us something to do until we can get these patients to the surgical subspecialists that they need for definitive management. So it is something to absolutely keep in mind, initiate early on and initiate at home if at all possible so that we're stopping this damage um, you know, almost as quickly as it starts. And with that, we will end for today. And thank you all so much for listening.